Minty Ross was born sometime around 1822 into a slave family in Maryland. We don't know the exact date or even the exact year that she was born because they really didn't keep records of when slave children were born in those days. She was born as one of nine children in her family. She was part of a very strong family, led by her mother and her father. They were very committed to keeping the family together. Her mom made that a top priority in their lives. You see, it was difficult for a slave family oftentimes to be able to stick together. People were constantly being bought and sold, and they were being traded all over the southern part of the United States. It was pretty rare, especially for a family that big, to all stay together. But her mom was very adamant about that. One day, the slave trader from Georgia had come up to Maryland, and he wanted to buy her youngest son, Moses. When they came to the house and they knocked on the door, Minty's mother cried out, and she said, I know you're here for my son, but the first man who walks through my door, I'll split his head open. That's the kind of stock that Minty came from, the kind of family that she was a part of. Now She learned the importance from an early age of being able to stand up and resist those who are trying to impress you, oppress you and enslave you. She learned the importance of being together as a family. As she was growing up, her mother taught her the scriptures. She taught her the importance of having a life of faith. As she was learning the scriptures, she really struggled with the New Testament. She saw these different scriptures in there that talked about slaves, obey your masters. She said, I really have a hard time loving and serving a God that tells me that I need to stay in slavery and obey my master. But she found solace and comfort, encouragement in some of the stories from the Old Testament, particularly the story of Moses and the exodus of the people of Israel. She said that a God who hears the cries of the oppressed who sets his people free and delivers them to the promised land, now that's a God that I can love and serve. That's a God that I can relate to. As she continued to grow older, it was in 1844 that she got married. She got married to a free black man by the name of John Tubman. And when she got married, she changed her first name to her mother's name in honor of her, Harriet. And so Minty Ross became Harriet Tubman. She would go on and continue to live an amazing life. In 1849, just five years later, her slave owner passed away. Now, oftentimes, whenever a slave owner died, the slaves would be split up again and they would be sold to different places. And facing the prospect of being split up from her family once again, she decided to take matters into her own hands. It was under the cover of darkness one night that she decided to escape. She ran away. Looking back later in life, she said, I'm guaranteed two rights in my life, liberty and death. And if I can't have one, I will have the other. She ran away that night, and it would take more than three weeks to travel more than 90 miles by foot going on the Underground Railroad before she finally made it to Philadelphia and for the first time in her life experienced what it meant to be free. Once she got there, however, she found that it wasn't quite as peaceful she didn't have the kind of satisfaction that she thought she would feel when she found her freedom. As she started to think about it, she realized it was because all of her friends and her family were still enslaved back there in Maryland. And she knew that she couldn't experience true freedom in her life as long as they remained under the oppression of slavery back home. Over the course of the next eight years, she began to take trips back to the South. She became a conductor on the Underground Railroad. She would take 13 different trips over those eight years, to free more than 70 slaves, to bring them to the north so that they too could experience freedom. 
looking back, she was able to, to say, I was a conductor on the Underground Railroad for eight years, and I can say something that most conductors can't. I never ran my train off the tracks, and I never lost a passenger. She would go on as she was uh, doing these different missions. She would often have to wear a disguise, a costume of sorts. The slave uh, catchers found out about her and what she was doing, and, and so they were trying to catch her. She would disguise herself, and she would get the people out of slavery, and they would start making that journey back north. And as they were doing so, they had to develop this code language in order to share messages with each other. There were so many people out there trying to catch them, trying to prevent them from achieving freedom. And so they started singing these spiritual songs. And they would use these as a code language to share messages with one another. One of the songs that she used most often was Go Down Moses. Robert and I didn't plan that this morning. That just worked out really well. She would sing this song, and depending on how fast or slow she sang it, would tell the people who were hiding behind her whether it was safe to come out and keep going forward or whether they needed to stay in hiding there in the forest. They would use this method in doing that. She freed more than 70 people. When the Civil War broke out, she took up the cause of the Union Army. She became a nurse and a cook for the Union soldiers, helping to take care of them. Pretty soon, they found out that she actually knew those backwoods better than they did from all of her time on the Underground Railroad. And so they promoted her to become a scout and a spy for the army. She would end up going on to raise in the ranks, and she would become the first woman ever in the U.S. Civil War to lead the Union Army to a victory in battle. She would lead a raid on Combahee's Ferry. There they would surprise the southern troops. They would come in by boat into the port. They started shooting off their cannons and their big guns. When all the slaves in the area nearby heard those sounds, they knew that was the sound of freedom. They dropped whatever they were doing, and these slaves took off running. Before the southern army could gather themselves to prevent this from happening, they loaded up on the ships, and they were out of there. That day, Harriet Tubman freed more than 700 people. She lived an incredible life. Even after the Civil War was over and the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed and everybody was free, she knew that the war was not over in terms of achieving freedom and equality. She would continue to fight for the rest of her life for the equality of African Americans, She would be a part of the leaders of the women's suffrage movement. She devoted her life to achieving freedom for herself and helping others to find freedom as well. She did this so much that people started to call her Moses. She earned that nickname for herself. It's because you remember the story of Moses from our scripture this morning. You remember how when Moses was just a young boy, his family were Israelite slaves there in Egypt. Pharaoh had given this decree that all of the Israelite boys who were born were to be killed immediately. He was afraid that they would continue to grow in numbers and in strength, and eventually they would overthrow him. And so he gave this decree, but Moses' mother was able, just like Harriet Tubman's mother, to fight back. She was able to hide him for a couple of years before finally she couldn't hide him any longer. She placed him in a basket and laid him there in the Nile River. As he was floating downstream, it was Pharaoh's daughter who found him. She picked him up and she adopted him into the family and he was raised there as part of Pharaoh's family. He grew to have great power as part of the Egyptian family and it was one day as he was out walking around that he saw an Egyptian taskmaster who was beating one of the Hebrew slaves. He was so outraged by what he saw that he took the man and he killed him and he buried him and hid him in the sand. 
He didn't think that anybody had seen what had taken place. But the next day, he was talking with two other Hebrew slaves. And they said, are you going to do to us what you did to that Egyptian? And he was scared for his life. He knew that his secret was out. So he decided to escape. He ran away to a place called Midian. And there he met Jethro and his family. He married one of Jethro's daughters and became a shepherd for his flock of sheep. It was one day there in Midian as he was out taking care of the sheep that he encountered this bush that was on fire. It was burning, yet it wasn't being consumed. So he went over and he encountered the presence of God there. And God gave him this mission, this purpose. Go and set my people free. For the next 40 years, Moses would spend the rest of his life following what God commanded him to do. He would follow him back to Egypt. He would follow God as he was going through the Red Sea. He would follow him in the wilderness as God appeared in the form of a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Moses was trying to follow God for the rest of his life. The question would always be, did he have the eyes to see where God was leading him and others to find freedom? And would he be able to have the courage to dare to stand up against Pharaoh in all of his power and might to help set the people free? This morning, I want to continue our sermon series, Daring Greatly. We started this sermon series last week, and we said that it's based off of a quote that comes from Teddy Roosevelt. You may remember that Teddy Roosevelt was giving a speaking tour around Europe in 1910. It was on April the 23rd of 1910 that he appeared at the Sorbonne at the University of Paris. It's a theological institute there. It was one of the great theological institutes in its day. And he appeared there to give a speech that was called Citizen in a Republic. He was talking about what it makes a great republic. He said it's not the brilliance of its citizens, not how smart they are, but rather it's how hard they're willing to work that makes the republic great. It's the willingness of the people to roll up their sleeves, to do the hard work, to be active in the world, blessing life, that makes the republic great. In the middle of this speech, he would, he would give this paragraph, and, and this quote has stuck with people for more than a century now. For over a hundred years, people from all walks of life, from all different arenas of society, have found inspiration in this quote. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. What does it mean for you and I to dare to be free? To dare to help others find their freedom? You know, we may not face the same forms of slavery that Harriet Tubman did or that the Israelites did there in Egypt, but we all face things that hold us back in life. We all face things that would keep us from becoming the people that God wants us to be, whether that be addictions, mental health, whether that be financial or marital problems whether it be the lies that people have told us that we have bought into about ourselves, 
there are things that keep us from becoming the people that God created us to be and experiencing the freedom and fullness of life that Christ wants for us. Are we willing to dare to find freedom for ourselves and for others? This morning, there's simply two things I want us to think about. First, it is in following God that we can find our freedom. When you look at the story of Moses, he escaped out of Egypt and he went to Midian. And there as a shepherd one day, he took the flock out. It says that he went beyond the wilderness to Mount Hebron. And it was there at Mount Hebron that he suddenly sees this bush that's on fire. Now I imagine in a dry, hot desert, that probably wasn't all that unusual of a scene for something to be on fire. And yet he noticed that something was different about this. The bush wasn't being consumed. And I love the way that it tells it in Exodus. Moses says, I turned aside from what I was doing to see this thing that was taking place. I thought that was really interesting. He had to turn aside from what he was doing in order to see the presence of God. How often do you and I miss the presence of God? How often do we miss where God is trying to lead us in life because we are so focused on what we are doing? We fail to look up and notice God's presence in our lives, God's voice calling to us. Earlier this week, I had a chance to be here at our downtown campus for Wednesday Night Alive. Wednesday Night Alive is one of my favorite things that we do all year long. It's a chance for us across our campuses to come together as a family of faith in the middle of the week, and we get to take classes on topics that we may not typically learn about. We get to to build friendships and fellowships with people we may not typically be in a class with. It's a great time for us to be growing in our faith. And so I was thrilled to get the, the opportunity to come down here to teach Wednesday Night Alive. I was filling in for Dr. Long and Reverend Wendy Lambert. You know that they're on their trip right now, on the Reformation trip. And so they invited me to come and teach their class on the gospel according to John. They're doing this class right now, and I was talking about some of the early stories in John's gospel. And one of the stories that we looked at was when Jesus calls his first disciples. You may remember this story. Jesus comes down, and John the Baptist sees him and declares, this is the Lamb of God. Well, Andrew, one of John the Baptist's disciples, and another one, they dropped what they were doing, and they immediately went to go follow Jesus. And they called him rabbi, teacher. Andrew went and found his brother, Simon Peter, and he says, we have found the Messiah. Come with us. So Simon Peter goes then to follow Jesus. Next, Jesus comes across Philip. He tells him, come and follow me. Philip drops everything that he's doing, and he goes to follow Jesus. And then he tells his friend, Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. You know, over the years as I've read this story, I've always struggled with this because I thought, who would do that? I mean, this is a man that they've never met before, as far as we know. They've never seen him teach or preach. They've never seen him perform any miracles. And yet they're willing to drop everything that they know and they love in order to follow this man that they just met. Doesn't it beg the question, why? Why would they be willing to do that? I think a part of it is they had the eyes to see. They were searching for the Messiah. They were actively looking for a Savior. And so when Jesus came by and John the Baptist declares, this is the Lamb of God, well, they've got the eyes to see it. They were able to turn aside from what they were doing to follow God's presence in their midst. Such an amazing story, an inspiration for us still to this day. Are we willing to turn aside from what we are doing in order to follow Jesus?
Harriet Tubman did live a, a very difficult life growing up. As she was growing up there in Maryland, uh, you know, she learned from her mother at an early age what it meant to be able to resist those who would try to oppress them, those who would try to keep them in slavery. In small and simple ways, they were able to fight back. One day she was running an errand into town, and as she was there, she saw this little slave boy come running down the street. His slave owner was right behind him, chasing after him, trying to catch him and keep him from running away. He cried out to Harriet and he said, stop that boy, stop him. Instead, she simply turned to the side and let him run on by. The owner was so mad that he picked up this weight and he threw it at the boy, but he missed and it hit Harriet in the head. It caused her to start bleeding and she went into a coma for several days. For the rest of her life, she would experience headaches, epileptic seizures, she would have medical problems for the rest of her days. But it was interesting, as she got older, and she started working on the Underground Railroad, she began to tell people that when she had these seizures and these headaches, she started to see these visions from God. It was almost as these premonitions of God telling her where to go and where not to go, which house was safe and which one was not, which road to take and which one to avoid. It was like she was hearing the voice of God. I'm sure people looked at her and thought that she was crazy for this, and yet she knew that she was staying true to what God was telling her to do. When I think about the story of Moses and the burning bush, when you think about this, he comes out of the wilderness, and he comes back to tell people, I encounter the presence of God in the form of a burning bush that never burned up, and God told me that I'm supposed to go back to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and all of his might and power and army, and he's going to let all of his slaves go for free. I'm sure people looked at him and thought, yeah, sure. I'm sure when Harriet Tubman, people, Harriet Tubman told people that she had these visions and that she heard the voice of God speaking to her, I'm sure people looked at her and said, yeah, sure. Sometimes in life when we follow God's voice, it doesn't always make sense. There will be people there to have us doubt, to criticize us, to question us. And yet when we are following God's voice in our lives, we can know that we are being true, that we are finding freedom for ourselves and for others. And when we're in the midst of the arena, there will always be people after us. Moses knew that. God never told him, you're going to have success in this journey. God never told him that it would be easy or that everything would work out according to plan. Now, when you read the scripture, the only thing that God promises is, I will be with you. When Harriet Tubman was leading people on the Underground Railroad, she knew that there would be slave catchers after them, people trying to prevent them from making it to a land where they could be free. There were, there were laws that were being passed preventing people from harboring fugitive slaves. Now, she knew that life would be difficult. And that's why she would tell every person that she took, if you hear the dogs, keep going. If you see the torches in the woods, keep going. If they're shouting after you, keep going. Don't ever stop. Keep going. If you want a taste of freedom, keep going. When you and I search for freedom from the things that would hold us down, the things that would prevent us from becoming the people that God wants us to be, there will be people who try to stand in the way. People who try to catch us and keep us down and oppress us. 
but keep going. Don't ever stop. And so second, what we find in the story of Moses is that once he finds his freedom, he has to listen for the voice of God, calling him to help others find their freedom as well. When Moses escapes out of Egypt and makes it to Midian, I think part of the reason that he had the eyes to see and the ears to hear that day at the burning bush is because he still didn't have this own sense of peace within his life. He was still searching for something. Even though it seemed that he was free, he just didn't feel like he was free. And so when he saw that bush that day, he had the eyes to see. He was open to it. You know, a few years ago, I was up in Chicago, and I uh, was there for seminary. And I went downtown one day to the Chicago Temple. The Chicago Temple is the first United Methodist Church in Chicago, and it's this beautiful downtown church right there at the Daly Plaza. It's, it's got so much history there, and I had a great time getting to tour around and, and learn more about it. As I was taking a tour of the church that day, I saw this, uh, this artwork that was hanging on one of the walls. It was a quote that came from the Aboriginal tribe in Australia, and it said, If you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. I think that really encompasses what Moses was feeling. He felt that he needed to follow God's calling to go back to Egypt, not to tell the people what they had done wrong all of these years, not to try to fix them. No, he went because he knew that he couldn't experience freedom in his life as long as his people were still enslaved what we know to be true for our lives today. As long as there are people in this world who are fighting oppression, as long as there are people in this world who are not yet free from the things that would keep them back, then you and I can't experience the fullness of life that Christ has planned for us either. The call story of Moses is a fascinating one. When you read the story there at the burning bush and God calls him to go and fulfill this purpose, this mission, It reads much like many of the other call stories in our Bible, just like Jeremiah, just like Jonah, and Gideon, and Isaiah. When God gives Moses the call, the first response is, are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, are you really sure you're talking to me, God? I'm not even a good public speaker. How am I supposed to go stand before Pharaoh and convince him to let the people go if I can't speak in public? How am I supposed to convince the Israelites to come with me and to follow me through the wilderness for 40 years if I can't stand up in front of them and speak? But what Moses would come to learn on this journey is that it wasn't about him and the gifts that he has. It was about who God is. God is the one who says, I will set my people free. It is not Moses. Moses is simply acting as the mediator between God and Pharaoh. When you and I are able to stand up and speak up, to use our voice to help others find their freedom, we are simply acting as the mediator between God and the pharaohs of this world who would work to oppress others and hold them down. It's not about who we are. It's about who God is. You know, this week I've been having a great time getting to see the the pictures and the stories coming back from our Reformation trip You know, there's 33 people from St. Luke's right now who are traveling around Europe. Dr. Long and his wife, Marcia, and Reverend Wendy Lambert are leading this group, and they started out going to Germany. They went there to see the sites of the early Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther began it all. 
From there, they, they spent a couple of days, and then they flew over to England. They've been in, now in England for a few days, seeing the sites of early Methodism, where John Wesley started the Methodist movement back in the 18th century. You know, I've got to admit, I've been a little bit jealous as I've been seeing these pictures. They're having such a great time there, and it's so amazing to see the sites that they're getting to visit. I love the beginnings of Methodism, our story, and who we are. You know, John Wesley was such an amazing character. He did so much as he was starting the Methodist movement to bring about reform within the Church of England. He brought with him this sense of personal piety and devotion, a commitment to growing in faith and to growing closer to God, a commitment to sharing that message of Christ with others. But at the same time, he also always maintained a commitment to what he called acts of mercy. Those things that we do to serve our community, the things that we do to help those who are in need, That's why in the early days of Methodism, the foundry was an important part of who they were. The foundry was this giant building that they had there in London. And from the foundry, they would serve their community. They would take in the widows and the orphans, those who didn't have a place to stay, and they would give them a bed to sleep on at night. It was out of the foundry that they would begin to serve food to those who were hungry. They would collect money to help those who were in debtor's prison get out of debt and begin their lives. Now, serving the community was always a part of who John Wesley was and who we are as Methodists. That is why we respond when there are times of need like hurricanes and wildfires, why we pick up and go to follow God's calling to serve others. But one of the things that John Wesley was always outspoken about was the abolition of slavery. He believed very much that as long as the institution of slavery existed in this world, we could not be following God's will for our lives that the institution of slavery ran contrary to who God wants us to be. And so he would speak and preach and teach about this all of his life. In fact, it was at the very end of his life when he was laying on his deathbed, just six days before he passed away, that he wrote the very final letter of his life. He would write this letter to a man named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was part of the social elite there in England at the time. He was a member of the British Parliament came from a family of great wealth. But just a few years before Wesley passed in 1791, four years before that in 1787, William Wilberforce became convinced of the need for abolition as well. In fact, he became really the spokesperson for the abolition movement uh, there in the British Parliament. Just like Moses, William Wilberforce had his doubts about that calling. He didn't think that people would take him seriously. He didn't know whether it was possible So for four years, he was trying to pass legislation, and it just wasn't going anywhere. And so in 1791, six days before he passed away, John Wesley wrote a letter to William Wilberforce to encourage him. I want to read you what he had to say. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Reading this morning a tract wrote by a poor African, I was particularly struck by the circumstance that a man who has a black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress. It being a law in all of our colonies that the oath of a black man against a white goes for nothing, What villainy is this? 
that he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. John Wesley had come to learn the same lesson that Moses learned. That in the fight for freedom for others, it is not about who we are. If it was, then we would eventually give in to all of those forces that would hold us back. But instead, it's about who God is. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Wilberforce would continue to fight this battle for another 16 years after that. And finally, 20 years after he picked up the abolition movement, in 1807, they passed the the Slavery Trade Abolition Act in Parliament. It prevented the slave trade from going on anymore in any of the British colonies. He would continue to fight for nearly another 30 years. And then in 1833, just three days before William Wilberforce passed away, they passed the Slavery Abolition Act. He had fought for nearly 50 years of his life. There had been the success of high achievement, and there had been loss and defeat and failure along the way. But he never gave up. He never quit. As people of faith, when we follow God's calling to find freedom for ourselves and for others, there will be critics in the arena. There will be those who would try to hold us back. There will be those who are there to criticize, to question, to raise doubts. But when we follow God's calling upon our lives, at times we may experience the defeat of failure, but we will also experience the success of high achievement. And we will do it all as people of faith, being active in this world, because we know that that's who God has called us to be. God has called us to be the people who dare greatly. It's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.